All right, well, a lot of us are fans of Lord of the Rings here. So uh, the first book is The Fellowship of the Ring. The second book is The Two Towers. And the third book is? The Return of the King. And in that part of the installment, uh, Aragorn finally conquers the armies of Mordor and claims his rightful throne. So I want to think about this phrase, the return of the king, and ask you how you feel when you hear that. What sort of emotions do these words stir up in you? Is there, are those words words of hope and glory, the return of justice and order and peace? Or do those words maybe fill you with fear and loathing for the return of an angry tyrant who will want to punish you and then control your life? America doesn't always love kings. Uh, I, just, I expect how you feel about that phrase depends a lot on how you feel about kings. Uh, there's another story of Robin Hood that also ends in the same way with the return of the king. King Richard comes home from the Crusades and he kicks out the weaselly usurper Prince John who had taxed the poor into starvation. And I think all of us love it when King Richard comes home because he's just so much better than Prince John. He delivers his people from a tyrant. So I want to think about the ends of these stories as we consider the end of Nehemiah's story today in chapter 13. What about Nehemiah? What about the return of this king? What's that like? Um, because Nehemiah's story ends, like these other two stories, with another kind of return of the king. What happened was that Nehemiah was 12 years working in Jerusalem. Uh, and after that, he was called back to Babylon for a while. And he left the high priest, Eliashib, in charge of things while he was away. Then, after he'd spent some more years in Babylon, Nehemiah got permission to return to Jerusalem as the governor of the whole province. And he came back to take charge. And boy, was he horrified to discover what had been going on in his absence. A lot of those people were about to get into big trouble. So this return of the king was not good news for everyone. And I'm sure that as we read this last chapter of Nehemiah, some parts of it made you feel a bit uncomfortable. Uh, there are parts where Nehemiah trashes people's furniture, and he beats people, and he curses people, and he tears out their hair, and he breaks up marriages. It's aggressive and violent. And if we wanted to measure Nehemiah by the gentle standard of Jesus Christ, we could make a case that he missteps here, probably seriously, in his harshness, in his circumvention of established authority, and in his tactics of cursing and shaming and coercion. What we see Nehemiah doing in this passage would be called abuse today. Uh, but while I'm not going to stand up here and defend abuse, let alone call for it, I do think that we need to have our eyes redirected to the main threat. To the main threat. Which is that we ourselves have much more uh, fear of physical abuse than we do of the spiritual flabbiness and compromises that will damn our souls to hell. And that is a big problem. The truth is that we have much more to fear from useless leaders like Eliashib in this passage than we do from leaders like Nehemiah. And given the choice in our flesh, we would all likely choose a leader like Eliashib. Soft, undemanding, permissive, and passive. A leader who doesn't really lead us, rather than a leader like Nehemiah, zealous, passionate, forceful, demanding, and immovable, 
who wants to conform us to God's standard and won't rest until it's done. We don't like that much. None of us really wants that, but we do need it. We're in such grave danger without it. And this closing chapter of Nehemiah shows us just how much God's people need leadership. Elisha was truly bad for God's people, wasn't he? And Nehemiah, we can see, was much, much better. But then, of course, King Jesus is the best by far. And here on this Christ the King Sunday, we'll end by briefly thinking about why King Jesus is better than Nehemiah here. But first, there are three important things we learn about ourselves from the end of the story of Nehemiah, ways that we desperately need godly leadership. Because we see that without strong godly leadership, without people to disciple us in the way of God, we will always tend to first make compromises with wickedness, second, grow greedy in business, and third, become promiscuous in sex. These are trends that happen with these people, but they happen today too. So we're going to hit all the big bases on this sermon today. We're going to hit money, sex, and power. Uh, you'll want to have your nose in the text for this one, so please turn to Nehemiah chapter 13 on page 408. 408, Nehemiah chapter 13. So first, without strong godly leadership, we will tend to make compromises with wickedness. So Nehemiah leaves town and he puts the high priest Eliashib in charge. And within just a few short years, the enemies of God are living in the temple. Verse 4 says, Now before this, Eliashib the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, <laughs> prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering and a bunch of other stuff. So the high priest cleared out the rooms in the temple where the offerings were stored, and he let his own relative shack up there. Uh, so the high priest was clearly neglecting his priestly role to collect the tithes and offerings because there aren't any. In verse 10, it says that the Levites and the singers had fled each to his own field because there was no provision for them in the temple. So Eliashib has given up doing his job providing for the care of the temple. And that has left the storerooms conveniently empty. And now he furnishes those rooms for his relative Tobiah to live there. A person living in the temple. What's more, a non-Levite camping out, even an Ammonite who had set himself up as the enemy of God and his people. We remember Tobiah. In chapter 2, Tobiah had scorned and jeered at God's appointed leader. In chapter 4, he had plotted violence against the builders. And in chapter 6, he was a leader of a conspiracy to have Nehemiah murdered. Tobiah was a snake. But Eliashib had let him back in, not only within the community of God's people, not only within the newly rebuilt walls of Jerusalem, but right inside the walls of the temple itself to live there. So in verse 8, we find Nehemiah's response. It says, and I was very angry. You bet he was angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And as we read these words, it really reminds us of Jesus turning over the tables of the money changers in the temple, doesn't it? Zeal for God's house has consumed Nehemiah too. 
Now, this action, as Nehemiah did it, would also have publicly shamed the high priest Eliashib, wouldn't it? And perhaps a more gracious means to the same end would have been to rebuke Eliashib in private first, and then in public if he wouldn't act decisively. Nehemiah was a powerful man, and here he comes across as a bit of a hothead. Um, but surely he does care about the right things. He cares about God's honor and God's word, and he moves swiftly to correct an obvious evil, and he's not afraid to make enemies in the service of God. And all these things are commendable in him. They're things for people like us to pay attention to. So rather than being Nehemiah's judge and judging his actions here, we need to ask ourselves, are we willing to offend the people who have taken their stand against God and his ways. Because our God has many enemies, people who hate him and stand against him, opposed to him. And when Jesus came to earth in the flesh, he lived a perfectly good and righteous life, and he made enemies, left and right, of Pharisees and Sadducees and Romans and Herod, and he quickly got himself killed. And Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So friends, are we willing to create offense in the right places? We want to look enough like our master Jesus that his enemies become our enemies too. In that sense, we want to make enemies in the right places. I used to word the, uh, read the words of Jesus to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, and I used to feel proud of myself that I really didn't have any enemies. But now I realize that that was not to my credit, but to my shame. The poet Charles McKay wrote, you have no enemies, you say? Alas, my friend, the boast is poor. He who has mingled in the fray of duty that the brave endure must have made foes. If you have none, small is the work that you have done. You've hit no traitor on the hip. You've dashed no cup from perjured lip. You've never turned the wrong to right. You've been a coward in the fight. Thankfully, Nehemiah was not a coward in this fight. He was utterly untroubled by making Tobiah, who was the enemy of God, his enemy too. And that is to his great credit. So friends, are we willing to make enemies? in the service of our God. Obviously not because of our sin, not because we're just irritating people, not for our arrogance or stubbornness or disrespect or unnecessary insubordination, but to make some enemies because of our righteousness, for our stubborn insistence on obedience to God's word. So, like if your boss wants you to fake some numbers or change some data to tell a different story or cover up a mistake, will you refuse? Will you gladly make an enemy of your boss, even if it costs you your job? Or if someone in your life tells you to stop talking about Jesus or sharing his gospel, will you refuse? Will you keep doing it anyway? Will you gladly make an enemy out of that person because of your allegiance to the command of Christ? Or if your boyfriend or girlfriend wants to transgress physical boundaries, will you refuse, even if that costs you the relationship? Making enemies for these kinds of reasons is greatly to our credit. But to do that, we, can't, we need leadership. We can't do it alone. And the first thing we notice in this chapter is that without strong, godly leadership, we tend to make compromises with wickedness. 
and especially in the end with our own wickedness. Because second, we will also tend to get greedy in business. So the second thing Nehemiah discovered, to his horror, was that Israel had once again forsaken the Sabbath day. We didn't read this part, but we're going to look at it briefly. Uh, the Sabbath day, they've forsaken it again. Uh, in fact, they had forsaken every one of the oaths and the promises that they made together back in chapter 10, verse 29, that we looked at together a couple of weeks back. Nehemiah finds in verse 15 that in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys. And he responds, I think, really well to this one. Because in verse 17, first of all, he confronts the nobles of Judah and rebukes them directly. Then he calls for the city gates to be locked throughout the Sabbath, which prevents trade. And he essentially forces obedience to the Sabbath. He trains it into the people. Now, their sin here in breaking the Sabbath is greed. Let's just call this what it is. God's command to rest on the Sabbath day and do no work could not be clearer in the Old Testament. And the reason Israel resisted that command for so many centuries was pure greed. We don't want to take a day off. A day off is a day wasted, a day when we could be making money, making progress, providing more for our families and for ourselves. So we're just not going to stop working when God tells us to. To Nehemiah's great credit here, he, takes, he cares a lot more about the word of God than about the prosperity of Jerusalem's business district. He is the governor and he cares more about God's word than money. God grant that we may always say that about our own governors. He cared less about money than about the word of God. God grant. Nehemiah was willing to get black marks in the books of all the merchants, bankers, and unions in the city in his defense of the command of God. So he's a leader with backbone, with the courage of his convictions. And of course, he is right. He is dead right. This is absolutely in line with God's priorities. No doubt about it at all. But once again, Nehemiah was a lone voice. He was the only person saying this. Nobody else was enforcing the Sabbath. Without godly leadership, the people really are just harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And this morning, I really want us to take this word to heart, because is it not still the case today that even after everything we've learned about Jesus, all the discipleship we've gotten under our belts, and all the discipline we've mastered, we ourselves still need constant leadership from godly men and women who are ahead of us down the road. Without constant leadership, we always tend to drift off course into compromises with sin and into prioritizing greed over godliness. So habits of fasting and self-control over alcohol and dessert slowly go out the window without leaders to hold us to account, and we slip back into fat and flabbiness. Habits of giving taper off, and we decide to just hold on to our money and save for college instead. And habits of keeping a holy day of rest to the Lord drift away when our boss asks us to come in and work extra hours or a paper comes due. Left to ourselves, we inevitably drift away from God. And I wonder today in particular whether you have drifted away from keeping a day, of, a, day a week free from work so you can enter into God's Sabbath rest. Do you take a whole day? 
Now, God's command on this to Gentile Christians is not the same as it was to Jews under the law of Moses, but nevertheless, the Sabbath is part of God's gracious gift to us in Christ. And it's a way for us to honor God by trusting him and forsaking our idols of greed and anxiety. And yet many of us today still don't keep it, don't rest at all, or we keep it occasionally and carelessly. So I challenge you seriously to give me a good reason that you are not keeping the Sabbath. A reason that doesn't basically boil down to greed or anxiety. It's because you want more money, or you're worried about paying your bills, or because you're anxious about your grades, or because you feel you need to work all the time to get ahead of the competition. Search your hearts on this one. Maybe what you really need is for Nehemiah to lock the gates on the Sabbath day so that you'll take a day of rest. Test your heart. If your constant working is really about greed or anxiety, then cut that idol down and commit yourself to a weekly Sabbath. I really think Nehemiah helped his people on this one, and he shows us that good leadership is always going to get far more good out of us than any self-imposed promises or resolutions or disciplines. Because look how far their vows in chapter 10 took them precisely nowhere. But Nehemiah's forceful stubbornness and leadership implanted the Sabbath on their new national culture. We should thank God for our leaders. Leaders take on the care of souls, and when they do that, it sharpens their own consciences to what is good and right. So much as we might dislike stubborn leaders like Nehemiah, we've got to recognize how much we need them, how lost we are without them. And it's for this reason that we as pastors call all who have ears to hear into this gathered fellowship of saints to come here every Sunday in person to be led and to be fed. Make it your top priority every week. This church is full of leaders and we will keep you moving forward in your relationship with Christ. Also join a missional community and commit yourself to it. You need saints around you, leading you, praying for you and taking you out on mission. On your own, the fruit of your life will have a steadily diminishing yield. And all the lines on the chart are going to trend downhill. Come under and stay under the wings of godly leaders. And I say this as a man who is under authority. I myself have a bishop, a pastor in Taylor, another in Fumi, as well as a spiritual director and an accountability partner who are all different people. And today I want to use such authority as I have to call all those who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus to put themselves under the authority of godly leadership in a meaningful way. Because without it, first, we make compromises with wickedness. Second, we get greedy in business. And now third, we become promiscuous in sex. Wherever godly leadership is lacking, sexual promiscuity is sure to follow. And so it is here when Eliashib was left in charge. Verse 23 says, In those days I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And this was a problem uh, into marriages, according to verse 1, where it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Into marriage with Ammon Ammonites and Moabites was forbidden by the law of Moses. But the situation here in chapter 13 is probably even worse than that because the men of Israel probably weren't even marrying these women. The Hebrew verb is that they were settling down and living with them. 
So translating that as marrying is very generous. Um, that verb is not used to in Hebrew to imply marriage, and Hebrew has several other ways to talk about marriage that are not used here. So the picture seems to be that some of the men of Israel were just shacking up with foreign women, maybe as concubines in addition to their wives, and they were having children with them. So I don't think this is just about intermarriage. It's outright immorality and promiscuity. And in verse 28, we learn that Eliashib's own son, Jehoiada, has been doing this too because he has a child with Sanballat's daughter. <laughs> Sanballat's daughter shacked up with the high priest's son. Uh, Nehemiah is understandably outraged, and he treats this situation with utmost seriousness and violence. Sure, this verse made you uncomfortable. Verse 25 says, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And this is no doubt a shockingly violent response from Nehemiah. It's not to be commended in a man of God, especially not in a governor. Nowhere does God's law commend, uh, command cursing people or pulling out their hair. And Jesus never did any such thing to his worst enemy. Um, but it's not out of proportion to the horror of their sin, is it? Or the fierce danger these Jewish men had fallen into. They were on a road that would lead to certain death. And if I were on that road myself, I can tell you, I would much rather have someone come along and pull out my hair and perhaps thereby save my soul. We mustn't be touchy about the physical harm and fearless to the spiritual harm. That's nonsense. These Jewish men were doing far more harm to themselves by their sin than Nehemiah ever did to them. And his urgent motivation was to bring them to their senses. God has made our bodies. Our bodies belong to God and our sexuality is sacred in the sight of God. It is one of the deepest mysteries of our personhood in God's image. It is not to be treated with casualness or reckless invention. God has given commands for the proper use of our sacred sexuality. It is given to bind a husband and a wife together in marriage for life and to produce godly children. And all forms of promiscuity are an unholy fire, which will be judged with holy fire. Friends, we know that we too live in the midst of people who are killing themselves who with deluded minds have wandered off into all manner of sexual promiscuity and wickedness. And because everyone around us is doing it, some of us attempted to do it too. But don't do it. Let us be clear today in our own minds as to the real danger. When a man has sex with a woman he is not married to, it is sin. When an engaged couple has sex before their wedding day, it is sin. When they have a child out of wedlock, it is sin. And when they end the life of that child in the womb, it is sin. When a man or a woman looks at pornography, it is sin. When they indulge in lustful fantasies about other people, it is sin. And when they share sexualized phone calls or text messages, it is sin. Within marriage, if a husband treats his wife as a sex object, it is sin. If he controls her or abuses her, it is sin. And if he opens his heart to another woman instead, it is sin. When a man divorces his wife, except for unfaithfulness, it is sin. And when he remarries after an unjust divorce, it is sin. 
And when a man visits a prostitute, it is sin. When a man has sex with another man or a woman with a woman, it is sin. And when a person has multiple sexual partners at once, it is sin. When a man dresses as a woman or a woman dresses as a man, it is sin. And when a man has surgery to become female or a woman to become male, it is sin. When a person kidnaps a man or a woman, it is sin. And when they abuse that victim's body sexually, it is a double and most grievous sin. And friends, these things are happening. They are happening here. They are done every day in Tallahassee, and most of them are done within walking distance of this church. All of them can be watched in a thousand different ways on Netflix, and most of them are actively promoted and celebrated there as something good. But they are not good. They are wicked. And all of them lead to certain death. Paul says that no one who does such things will inherit the kingdom of God. So I hope that Nehemiah's hair pulling will convince us this morning of the seriousness of our modern sexual problem and that it might bring some of us to confession and repentance. Because thanks be to God, there is grace. There is grace to cover all our sin. There is forgiveness in the cross of Jesus. All of us have messed up sexually in one or more of these ways. If you're sitting here thinking, ooh, oh, that's me, it's me too. It's the whole room full of us. I'm not throwing stones because they would land on me too. But Jesus died on the cross for all these sins that lead to death. And his blood can wash away all the guilt of them forever. So we do not despair because there is hope for sexual sinners. But we must repent. We must turn away from these works of darkness or we will be turned away at the door of heaven in the end. Take this seriously because the king is coming. The story of this world is going to end just like the story of Nehemiah, just like the Lord of the Rings, just like Robin Hood with the return of the king. King Jesus, the one we worship, the one we long for, the good and righteous king is gentle and kind and just. And he took an equally strong stand against the injustices of his day without once committing violence. He kept the Sabbath rest just like he did after he created the world in six days. But then he took another three days in the tomb to recreate the world. And he valued and maintained holiness and purity while at the same time paying for and welcoming every unholy and every impure person from every tribe and nation on earth so as to turn multi-ethnic marriage from a danger into a thing of beauty. This is the king who is coming. King Jesus will return. So in what state is he going to find his people? Will he find us ready? watching for him, holding fast to his word with purity of heart, or will he find us having drifted back into idolatry and sin, into greed and promiscuity? There will be no mercy left for those who are not ready on the day when he comes. There will be no mercy left for those who are not ready on the day when he comes. But there will be joy everlasting for those who have clung in love to their good and gracious God, renouncing sin, wickedness, and crooked, underhanded ways. 
and embracing the full measure of what it means to be human in God's image. It means to be fearless, steadfast, and zealous for all that is good. Amen.